Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. This show is brought to you by Flatiron's Tuning, your source for any aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts. Be sure to check out our store at flatironstuning.com, and stay tuned with Flatiron's Tuning. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is now episode number 47 of the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. We've got Ryan from DSX Motorsports with us again. And uh, on this episode, we have got Dave from RallySpec uh, returning to the podcast. and is, is kind of Dave, as we alluded to, uh, I guess the first time you're on, uh, the other the other topic that we wanted to sit down and chat with you about is super engines and, and the engines that you guys build. And so as as we're recording this here in 2021, Rally Spec, uh, your shop has got a pretty broad list of engine options at this point. Um, you right. have a lot of choices that start basically just with with the forged piston, all the way up to closed deck block with with a lot of internals and, and options rated for for very high horsepower but i would i would wager that when you started kind of going down the road of building subaru engines that you didn't start thinking that you were going to have like that many that many options or, or that many that many different configurations on offer i'm sorry what was the question again <laughs> sorry well so when you when you started like your engine project or yeah. your engine program i'm guessing that you did in anticipate having so many different right, options. Right. Yeah, I guess uh, when we started, you know, offering like uh, fully assembled short blocks and long blocks, uh, you know, that's gone back to maybe around 2005, 2006. So, I mean, uh, it kind of predates the whole closed deck 2.5 option. Sure. So, I mean, you know, it was just mainly about just, uh, you know, upgraded pistons and rods and, you know, combating the broken ringland uh, engine failure problem that, you know, a lot of people were seeing. And sure. uh, it just, it kind of expanded from there. So, so it really kind of stemmed out of just the need as people started to make more and more power, you're, you're hitting the limitations of the, the factory short block and just trying to, sure. to shore up those weaknesses. I mean, there was always sleeving as an option, uh, which is something that we did on some of the bigger power, you know, engine builds. But uh, as soon as closed decking, you know, became a, you know, consistently reliable option, that was, you know, the way to go in terms of both cost and, you know, performance, cooling, all those things. Sure. Well, and, and maybe before we, we talk into those high-end options, what can we maybe just talk through some of like the, the, the first weak spots that, that, you, that people were hitting as you started turning up the power and making more, making more boosts and that sort of thing? Like you uh, mentioned, Ringlands. Yeah, I mean, Ringland failure um, was a big issue. It uh, still is a big issue uh, once you get up to a certain power level. Uh, and, and even... Even with a factory power output, if you suffer detonation or, you know, something along those lines, there's a good possibility you're going to break a ring land uh, just because the cast pistons are brittle and they don't suffer shock loading very well. Sure. Um, and um, but beyond that, I mean, I would say uh, rod bearing failure is, is another big issue that people have. Um, those are uh, those are definitely the two the two big ones the yeah if you search the internet so let's 
maybe let's define what is a, a cracked ring lane just for people at home if there's any kind of confusion as far as what, what that is. Uh, okay, so basically uh, between the top and second ring, you have, um, I mean, you've got the two ringland grooves and there's material in between those two grooves. And what happens is you, uh, you see a crack form uh, between those uh, grooves. And usually at some point, you know, a, a piece of that material will actually break free and uh, from the piston piece of material from the piston it stays trapped in there for the most part but you lose you lose compression um because the rings are not sealing as well as they should be yeah and and one of the symptoms of this uh for super people if you've run into this is this is where you start to see oil consumption go up as well because the 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 ring land is broken the rings are not sealing so you might see a little bit of a drop off in power but this is also when you start to see oil kind of sneak up Pass the rings yeah. and get in the combustion yeah, so chamber. A lot, a lot of people don't even realize that they've broken the ring land, you know, because the performance does not drop off that much. Um, but yeah, oil consumption goes up, you know, and case pressure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A lot more, a lot more blow by. You'll see oil in the, the um, intercooler and the intake system, you know, just because of the amount of blow by. And then, and then as far as a, a failed rod bearing, so that's just where basically the, the rod bearing starts to make contact with the crank, um, right. usually symptomatic of something to do with an oiling issue. So usually some kind of an like oiling problem, would you say, or would also yeah, cause I by mean, detonation? A lot of times it's really, really difficult to identify what the source of the failure was, you know, because there's so much destruction. Um, but uh but yeah, I mean, it's almost always oil related, uh, whether it's uh, oil temperature related, whether it's uh, oil starvation, uh, oil quality, you know, uh, you know, sometimes uh, a lot of times with uh, E85, you get a lot of, uh, you know, oil contamination from, from the ethanol, uh, which reduces the ability of that, you know, oil to lubricate the parts. So, so as you're as you're starting to kind of see what all these common issues are, that's where you start kind of putting together, like building an engine from from a bare case halves up using forged pistons, pistons that are maybe more durable, uh, and so forth, just just to make it so that these engines can more consistently, more reliably handle, you know, making more power, more boost, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, where did it where did it come out, or maybe can you talk a little bit about how the, the different options that you have came about because it's I mean forged pistons are pretty much the obvious one the ring lands is, is something that's on the top of everybody's mind if you're looking at building a super engine and making power but then some of the other options as far as like the rod rod choices and maybe other options for the sharp lock I mean that maybe you can talk a little bit about I, I, I guess functions. I guess that the thing to realize you know maybe maybe a lot of people don't understand when they get involved in trying to make decisions on building an engine is that there's always some sort of trade-off involved with, you know, anything that any part that you choose, any process, um, there's always some sort of trade-off. Maybe it's economical, maybe it's, you know, other reasons. So, I mean, there's really no one size fits all build. Um, You know, it really depends on what you're doing with the car, what sort of 
power you're targeting, where you want it to make that power, um, how long you want it to last. Um, I mean, obviously, starting with, say, pistons, uh, you've got different piston alloys, depending on, you know, um, you know, what you're doing with the car. Uh, you've got the 2618 for, you know, for, in terms of forging, you've got 2618, you've got 4032, uh, 2618 being a very strong piston. Uh, it's got a high copper content. Uh, so it, 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 you know, moves heat away from the piston crown very effectively. Uh, but it's, it doesn't have a lot of surface hardness, you know, over time, it will wear out quicker than say a 4032, which doesn't have that high copper content, but it's got a lot of silicon. Silicon is very hard. It, it creates a, you know, good wear surface. So it can last a long time, but it's, it's, it's not as strong. It's a little more brittle. Uh, so you can still suffer ring lamp failures, uh, with a, you know, really severe detonation. It's definitely not at, you know, to the level of a, a cast piston, but, uh, you know, for a, a street driven car, uh, with not a huge amount of power that, that is definitely the, the piston option that you'd want to go with for, you know, long-term, you know, getting the maximum mileage out of the, the engine. So this uh, is, for, yeah. and this is the 4032? 4032, yeah. So this is, this is what I guess most commonly would be referred to as the low expansion forged piston. Exactly. Versus like the 20, was it 2016, 2016, which is uh, kind of... 2618. 2618, yeah. sorry. Uh, that's, that's kind of the, the, the default alloy now for the, the majority of forged pistons out there for Subarus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the, um, what the, the factory did when they were using forged pistons in some of the STIs, they were using a 4032 alloy. Okay. You know, it's because you can, you can run it tighter in the bore. It's not as much noise and it, it just lasts longer. You know, it's more wear resistant. Um, so but from a motorsport standpoint, you know, it doesn't transmit heat quite as well. It's not as strong. It's not as detonation resistant. Those are the type of things that you really want in a motorsport application because you, you want it to last through the race, but you're not concerned about it lasting for 100,000 miles. You right. know? So there's always trade-offs. I that's, mean, that's going to be the case with anything, you sure. know, especially in pistons. And that, that is a, those are, those are details and it, it's, it's clear with as much details you went into both of those choices or, or how much is involved in making that choice between those two, you guys, you guys have had a lot of experience trying a lot of different things, sure. but that's something that a lot of people, when they're, when they're looking at, at putting in an engine, maybe it gets overlooked is that there are some of those choices and trade-offs being made. Right. Um, and, and one of the biggest ones, like I said, is is the, the overall life expectancy, the life target of, of a short block. Because um, oftentimes, it, I, think it's, I think it's fair to say that people will commonly think if you just put in a forged piston because it's better, well, if that's fixing the problem that, that right. the super engine supposedly has, well, this, this engine must now last much, much longer because you've fixed right. that problem. But there's, it's, there's, there's more layers to it than, than just making that simple choice. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and then 
So maybe can you go into maybe some of the other details as far as like different rod choices um, and maybe yeah. anything that you maybe would do with, with the bearings or, or some of the choices that would be made there uh, in addition to just yeah, the I mean, I, I, I would say a number one, you know, distinction between some of the different options that we offer is going to be pistons, you know, depending on if it's a targeted for a street application or a race application. Then you've also got the block itself. You know, what sort of things do you need to do to the block to get the rigidity, uh, you know, to keep that bore shape, to keep that deck surface sealing against the head gasket? What are the types of things you need to do there to make it uh, reliable for the type of power level that you're going to make? So, I mean, obviously, block choices is dictated mainly by how much power you want to make. Uh, and then connecting rods also uh, to a degree dependent on the power level. Uh, I mean, you've got different rod, um, you know, beam shapes, you know, I-beam versus H-beam. Now there's tri-beam and X-beam, um, you know, and that's kind of, you know, somewhat subjective. <laughs> uh, still still trade-offs being made usually as far as like, weight for ro for rotating yeah, mass weight, versus weight, strength. weight weight versus strength you know and stiffness um you know with a with a lot of power you'll see distortion of the big end and the small ends under those high loads so you got to think about the rigidity there you know some connecting rods will put you know a lot more material in certain areas that others do not so you've got to right select the connecting rod that you know is going to support um, power level. And you've also oh, got yeah. materials as well. You know, the most common material these days for aftermarket connecting rods is 4340 chromoly, uh, which is very good material. But, you know, we also do a, uh, a version of our rods in 300M material, which is, you know, about 10% stronger, uh, higher tensile strength. And that, um, so that allows us to keep the same weight, but increase the strength by, you know, a certain amount of, you know, certain margin. Sure. And then you've also got the connecting rod bolts that those are probably the most highly stressed, you know, component in the engine. Um, and you've got different grades of bolts to choose from as well. Well, so that's, that's an interesting point that probably gets missed often because, so the, the big end of the rod is split. So th right. that's where the, the crank sits and the, the bolts are what connect both of those pieces of the rod together. Yeah. So as you're, as the piston is being pushed down, I think the crank is pushing up against the, the top of the rod, but then as it's, as it's coming back up again, it's really that, that bolt that's holding the bottom end of, on the rod together. Yeah. So it, there's, there's a lot of force that goes through there. It's basically keeping the connecting rod and the piston from launching off into space. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. You know, like it, it's very, it's a very critical fastener. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I guess the one thing, one big takeaway is that um, as you raise your RPM, you know, range that you're running the engine at, the forces on those uh, connecting rod bolts are going to increase exponentially. Yeah. So, I mean, you you have to really take that into account if you're thinking about raising that rev limit. For sure. 
All right. So Dustix, I got a question for you. Yeah. At, at this point in this day and age, if you're going to build a high horsepower super engine, what, what kind of number would you say is a high power super engine at this point for, for uh, cylinder? Uh, for time attack or just in general? Let's, let's say, let's say in general. I'd say probably eight, 900 wheel horsepower. So, so Dave, my question to you is when you started, was there, was there even a thought that you can make eight to 900 horsepower no, with the four never, cylinder? Never a consideration. <laughs> this, cause you're saying back in 05 and 06, I'm, I'm trying to think I mean, back to that. Back point. then I would say 600 was the, I mean, basically 900 horsepower right. now is the 600 horsepower of 2006. Right. You know, yeah. That was, that was the, the, you know, that was what everybody wanted, but nobody could really achieve. Or, or, or people would make 600 horsepower, but it'd be for like yeah. a really short amount of time. And then you, you mentioned launching pistons into orbit and then, then something like that would happen. Well, I think it's a boxer. So as long as we're on this flat earth, I guess it would make it to orbit eventually. Right. <laughs> if, if you have enough escape velocity, you can go straight out sideways and still get in orbit. I, I'm not saying you should try that, but, but yeah, it could be done. So, it, and my, my point there is, is just that like what our concept of what a high power engine is, has really changed in like these last 10, 15 years. And, yeah. and like to think about, like you're saying, like 800 horsepower is now something where it's not that uncommon out of a four cylinder engine. And if you do the math, that means that each piston is making 200 <laughs> horsepower crazy, to do yeah. that, which is like, sometimes it's, it's good to take a step back and just kind of think about like what your power targets are, because that's, you're, you're basically having one piston of your four cylinder engine make almost as much power as that the whole the four cylinder engine one. does stop. <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of crazy. So that's where, that's where a lot of this progression has come in is like trial and error through time, finding parts, finding approaches, finding ways to make engines to be able to make this, these huge leaps in power, but still be, you know, reliable or, or as reliable as they can be. Yeah. Well, one, one thing, uh, I think one of the, the biggest hurdles that people found was just the amount of, you know, flexibility or lack of rigidity in the, in the Subaru block, you know, mm -hmm. like that, that is the biggest hurdle to overcome and yeah you can make 600 700 horsepower but that block is moving around a lot you know there's there's a lot of distortion occurring there you know the the main bearing tunnel is changing shape uh and may take a permanent set even you know with you know after a certain period of time from all those forces being exerted on it so you and, know explain a little bit more of what you mean by by flex there because i think people look you think of a cylinder block it's this big piece of metal and you think well that is that is totally solid but right well maybe um, not. i mean everything you you put enough force on anything it's going to change shape you know uh and um you know obviously uh the biggest you know, forces involved are, you know, the combustion pressure inside the cylinder. So, I mean, all other things being equal, you know, to make more power, you need to increase that pressure in that cylinder. And that's pushing out in all directions. You know, it's obviously pushing the piston down, but it's also pushing out, trying to 
balloon that that cylinder um you know and you know one of the things a lot of people were seeing early on before the advent of the closed deck option uh was the top of the cylinder would start to crack you know uh Mm -hmm. the liner basically that that steel sleeve that the factory casts into the the block because it was just ballooning out you know it was just expanding and it was beyond what it could handle and it just would split um but also you have you know forces you know pushing on the crankshaft the crankshaft is yeah it's rotating but it's also pushing down you know against the opposite side uh if one end of it is being, you know, there's force applied to one end of the crankshaft, it's trying to, to bend and, and so forth. So, you know, the block, the crank, all the connecting rods, all those things have to, you know, retain their shape as well as possible. Kind of be able to know, work together almost. For it to stay together, yeah. Yeah. Well, so, and, and, and heat is the other one because the more the more power that you're heat, making, the yeah. more heat you're making. Heat transfers through metal, so it, it transfers through the whole engine block very easily. I mean, the coolant is there to try and, and contain that as much as possible. But I mean, if you're talking six, seven, eight hundred horsepower, you're putting a lot more heat into the engine as well. So there's there's a lot of considerations to what even like the heat and the expansion, and then all of the cylinder forces are doing to all of those parts that are that are right. spinning around. And you're trying to keep together as you're as you're trying to keep the car reliable. Yeah. Yes, I noticed that. Uh, like talking about that that deformation of the block and stuff. That you guys offer pin mains, but not all the way up until like you get the your mid your mid level race series. Is that something that somebody could add to like uh, like maybe their higher end street block or something like that? Uh, what's the question? Pinned mains. You guys have it. Oh, in, pinning like, the mains. Do... Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, we on some of the more extreme builds. Yeah, we will do that. Um, the only issue with that is it's a pretty complex machining process, so it gets fairly expensive because you've got to line for the case afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Because, you, you know, once you pin the, those, once you add those pins, you know, that, that tunnel, you know, that, you know, that bore that the bearing sits in may not be exactly the way it was before because, you know, maybe you didn't get the location of the pin on both sides exactly right. So you got to go in and, and remachine that tunnel perfectly. Um, so, well, you know... And- it Let's, is something that we would do, um, but uh, but yeah, I, I would say, I mean that billet, the billet blocks, the will all billet blocks, you know, also kind of go even further in terms of increasing the rigidity of the block and and keeping the shape of that tunnel, that main bearing tunnel. You know, so let, let's just define what a pin main is, just just for people if, if they're not clear on what exactly that is. So with, with the boxer engine, you have basically two halves. You have two cylinders on each side, and those two halves come together. Yep. They're, they're bolted together. The crank goes through the middle. And basically those bolts that are holding the two halves together, some of those bolts are, are holding those two halves 
two halves together where basically the main bearing shells go go down down the the, the crank right. uh, or the five positions of the crank so i think the factory uh there's there's a couple locating factors there but talk about what what pinning the mains is doing and, and why that could be a benefit uh well pinning the mains is basically adding a a set of, of dowel pins uh on next to the the bolt holes just to help you know help retain the connection between the two halves of the block and keep you know because obviously uh if it's just the bolts that are holding it together they're not super accurate you know because you know there's some clearance for the bolt to go through you know so it's not really locating the two sides together as well you know so there's there can be some movement expansion you know distortion um you know when you add the dowel pins that's just an an extra you know means of keeping those those two halves you know, accurately located together, you know, under the extreme forces. So involved. like all, all we were talking about as far as like the, the stress loads on the rotating assembly, the heat load on the rotating assembly, if you've got these additional dowel pins to really lock in the position of, of the block and yeah. the main bearings, and that just makes it a little bit more consistent, maybe more consistent oiling, just, just better able to more reliably handle that high power and high heat load. I mean, it keeps the block from shifting like this too, you know, which I know is pretty extreme, but you know, you're making, we're talking that 800 horsepower before a lot of stuff spinning up high RPMs, a lot of stuff changing directions really, really fast. A lot, a lot of forces at play. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I guess, I mean, we're kind of getting into this range. Let's talk about like one of the first things that, that really kind of came about to make like higher power than say five, 600 horsepower possible, which is, I guess first sleeving, and then now closed deck, uh, a closed deck insert for the block, right. because like I said, the the stock cylinders they became a weakness at about let's say five five fifty somewhere in that range or like six hundred, where you can make the power, everything seems to be going okay, and then all of a sudden, you can have these this catastrophic failure of the cylinder in yeah. the block itself, and so that's what people first started to address. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say, um, the, the weakness of the two, five block is that the bore size is so big. So there's not a lot of material available to support the cylinder. You know, the, the cylinder liner itself is, is fairly thin, you know, that, that steel sleeve that's cast in. So there's not, there's not a lot to you know, retain that, that cylinder, you know, shape, you know, especially when, you know, combustion pressures are pushing outward at the top, you know, when, when, you know, the pressure builds to its peak, you know, when the piston's near the top of the cylinder, you know, that's where the, the pressure is suffering a lot of, a lot of expansion, you know, and there's not material, there's not enough material to, to keep it in shape. Yeah, and this is the best way to think of it is, is your piston is sitting right at about top dead center and combustion is happening and the gases are expanding and starting to push the piston down. Right yeah, as the piston the, starts the to go down, that's when the pressure is the highest. Yeah, pressure is building up to a peak. That peak is probably happening, 
you know, when the piston is, you know, maybe like a half an inch below the, the, the deck surface, maybe. I don't, yeah. I don't know so, exactly, so, but. So not much material. Yeah. And so there's all of that pressure is focused like on the top edge yeah. of the cylinder. It's not the whole cylinder. It's, it's the top edge. And then as yeah. the piston goes down, the volume increases, the expansion continues, but the pressure goes Drop, down a bit. Starts dropping. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you that, got that, that Pascal's law. That pressure is equal everywhere, and there's not a lot of support going out the sides. We're really that's true. That <clears throat> I mean, so, Subaru, Subaru, um, they at least, you know, created a semi-closed deck block as opposed to an open deck block, which would be, a, you know, even worse situation. But yeah. the semi-closed deck just has a few small tabs of material supporting that top, you know, top of that cylinder. Well, and one of the sort of funny things that Subaru did. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense, but it also is a little bit odd is they didn't, they didn't change any of the dimensions. So when they, when they went from the two liter engine to the two five, when the two five came out, like if you look at it, if you look at the constraints of the short block, it's all the same outside shape and size. They didn't, yeah. they didn't go any larger. They didn't change any of the dimensions. I mean, this is why like hybrid swap where you put a two liter head on a 2.5 liter block they kept all of the, the head bolts, the, the locations were exactly the same. All they did is they opened up the, the cylinders from 92 millimeter to 99.5 millimeters and, and changed the stroke to get the, to get the displacement up. But in doing so, then they took away a lot of the real estate of those cylinders that they could have used to kind of sure up the, the cylinder to, to make it more durable. Right. So then the aftermarket, once you, once you kind of hit that limit, then that's where the aftermarket came in and, and tried to come up with a solution. And so the first solution was a sleeve, which it, it I'm going to describe it briefly. And Dave, you can fill in any, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. fill in any details that I missed, but it, it almost sounds insane because what you're doing is you, you take the whole cylinder and you just machine all of that out. And then you yeah. take a, a full steel sleeve and you press it in place of the cylinder that you just machined away so that now you have a full steel sleeve where there was the aluminum in the steel sleeve. Right. And you, and usually, uh, you know, this, the performance sleeves have a pretty big step at the top. So there's a lot of material at the top of that sleeve, but yeah, you're taking, you're taking everything of the original cylinder out, you know, and pressing that in. Yeah. You know? And it's, it's pretty, it was pretty successful for a good while. Um, you know, it, like if you're going to try and make 600 horsepower or more reliably, yeah. sleeving the block was kind of the thing to do. Um, but maybe can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that people run into with the sleeves? Sure. I mean, the big the big one is, um, you know, if if the sleeve wasn't if if the machining work wasn't done well or the sleeve wasn't installed properly, you know, they push that sleeve down, it's pressed in place but there might be some material trapped underneath or maybe it didn't get pressed down all the way. Um, you know, or sometimes what, what we've seen sometimes is the, they use Loctite to, to keep it in place as well. And the Loctite finds its way underneath. You press it down, they think it's all the way down, but it's not. And there's something underneath of it. And then with the, you know, temperature changes and the, um, you know, forces being exerted on the block, you know, that sleeve will slowly creep downward, you know? And so while, 
you know, while it was a perfectly flat deck to begin with, now the sleeve is sunk in and it's not seal. The head gasket is not sealing anymore. Uh, and you have head gasket issue. Um, and it wouldn't take much of a movement there to break that no. seal with the head gasket. Yeah. Yeah. I and, mean, and the other, the other issue, I guess, is, you know, the, um, like the thermal characteristics, the heat transfer through that, that much thicker steel sleeve is not as good as if it's aluminum because aluminum transmits heat much better than steel. So, I mean, you're not getting the kind of cooling that you would get um, with a different solution that involved, you know, aluminum, you know. Well, and, and you've, you've got this big piece of steel that you've pressed into this aluminum housing and those two things, as you get them really hot and then cool them down and get them hot again, mm -hmm those two materials are going to behave differently in over, over time and over heat cycles too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that then all of those issues, like for a race application where like you need to run an event or a weekend or maybe a couple of weekends, and then you go through the block sleeves made sense. Like it, it was, it was effective and it worked well for them, but like the yeah, long, I mean, uh, longevity the, was the, a little the, bit the, different. The sleeve for the most part, the ones that people are using are much thicker than the factory cylinder liner. So with a closed deck process, you're only really reinforcing the top. You're not changing that, that liner. So farther down, it's still thin. It's still not as strong as a sleeve. Um, so I would say for like drag racing, sleeving is probably still the, the way to go, but you're, you're, you're rebuilding those engines much more frequently. So you're not, you're not as concerned about those type of issues that you might run into. Right. So, so trying to increase the longevity, that's where the closed deck inserts came into the right. picture. So it's something that it's, I mean, Ryan is, I, I'm guessing you could elaborate on has been present in other forms of, or in other manufacturers. I, like I've seen a lot in Hondas oh, for yeah. years and years, but then somebody finally got the idea of like, well, wait a minute, if it works on this and it works on this, why don't we try it on the Subaru? I almost feel like it works out better for those inline four cylinders where all the pistons are together. Because that, that chunk of like that thermal expansion and all those pieces are all kind of more unionized, you know, whereas with the Subaru, you got two over here and you got two over there. And I don't know. I feel like uh, it, it seemed to make more, like it was so much easier to do it in that application than it was to do it in Subarus. Right. But once people started doing it in Subarus, there have been mm -hmm. various different manufacturers, machine shops that have. Right hone mm -hmm. hone the process and it's gotten to the point where now it is like fairly i think it's fair to say common like that that if you if you're trying to build a high power uh short block you could, you'd have a closed deck sleeve insert put in yeah it, it's it's reached a level of you know reliability and consistency especially with the you know cnc equipment that everyone has these days i mean you can you can machine extremely accurately you can make sure that it has the right amount of press fit you know if you choose the right material for the inserts i mean it works out pretty well yeah well now so let me throw this at you dave so we've talked in, in pretty pretty specific detail about the different options for the for the engine blocks and engine block builds the different components machining techniques that you can use to make sure that, that the block will stand up to to, to that, that high power level as reliably as possible. But 
I want to I want to throw this out and see what you think. Most people, I think, if you're trying to hit a power goal, this is kind of where where they would kind of focus a lot of their energy is on the sharp block. The concern is, I want to make 800 horsepower reliably, so I need a sharp block that's going to make 800 horsepower. And and so they they focus on all the details and, and what's going to be reliable there. But the sharp block is what can hold the power, but it doesn't exactly make the power. So there's there's a lot of other pieces to the puzzle to get to that 800 power number. So yeah. like you can have a block that can hold it, but if you're if you're just thinking about maybe a turbo, like turbos are, are pretty commonly thought of in, in the super world, but you're not thinking about the cylinder heads or cams or the valves or any of the other details. You can have a block that can hold the power, but but you won't actually get that result. You might have a block that's way beyond the the build characteristics than you than you would actually need because you, you have you don't have the whole picture together. Would you say that that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you have to you have to think about all the different factors and you know select the parts that are going to work best together. I mean, just grabbing X turbo and you know Y cams and you know. Z injectors, you know, is not going to guarantee you, you know, an engine that is going to make the kind of power that you want, um, you know, or you might, you, you know, you might be working against each other, you know, you might have a turbo that is, is a huge turbo, it may, it, it comes on at six, 7,000 RPM. <laughs> But yeah. then you're still running stock cams and those cams are not allowed in your heads are, aren't going to flow at that RPM range. Now you're working against each other. You know, uh, you kind of have to think of everything together, you know, and, and, and build it all together with a package in mind, you know, goal in mind. Right. Um, how, how are you going to make the power and how are you going to hold the power? Not just how are you going to hold the power? Yeah. So, so to that end, you guys have also put forth a fair amount of thought into the other end of that spectrum. Primarily, what I'm thinking of here is your cylinder head packages, mm -hmm. because so like with cylinder heads, I think that's one of the things. I, there, there's a lot of people's mindset has kind of shifted to, to cylinder heads as, as well, but I don't think as much as people's mindset is focused on cylinder blocks. Yeah, so maybe it's definitely overlooked. Yeah. Sure. So maybe talk about where like. Even, even the concept that a cylinder head could become a restriction or, or be one of the limiting factors. Maybe talk about how that can be or how that can come. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean you, you're, you're upgrading your exhaust system, you're upgrading your intake system, your turbo flows more. Now you got to get all that through the cylinder head. So, I mean, the cylinder he head has a certain port size, it has a certain valve size, uh, has cams that open the valves for a certain period of time. So if you wanna get more flow through the head, you need to think about what you need to do you know, to those parts to increase that, that flow. To, to facilitate um, getting more air and fuel into the cylinder. Yeah, you wanna get more air, air and fuel. Obviously the main thing is, you know, to get more air in, but there's other considerations as well. Uh, you also have to think about, you know, the um, 
the, the mixture, you know, how well that fuel and air mixes together. You want a certain amount of turbulence in that flow when it goes into the cylinder so that the, you know, the fuel is distributed evenly through that cylinder. And when that, you know, uh, spark plug lights, lights off, then you get a uniform, you know, explosion basically. Um, You're able to actually make use of all the fuel and air that you yeah, put in exactly. there. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, I mean, once you start talking about big power levels, I mean, yeah, you, you, you're probably going to have to open the ports up, open the valve sizes up, uh, and, and increase the duration of the cam. And between those things, you will increase the amount of flow that that head is capable of moving through it. So, so once you increase that flow rate so that you're, you're making it easier for that air to get into the cylinder, then you can actually make proper use of it. And then once you have the block that can hold up to that extra power, mm -hmm. then that's where the, the package starts yeah. to work together. But there's always, I mean, as we talked about in the beginning, there's always trade-offs. So, I mean, once you increase that, that those dimensions, um, now at lower RPMs, you know, that flow, you know, doesn't move as quickly through there. So there's not as much, you know, turbulence, you don't, you lose the efficiency in that lower RPM range, that throttle response. So, I mean, it's a trade-off, but that may be what you need to do to get your peak power numbers that you're after, you know, is to sacrifice the low end to gain in the top end. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something that is, is so often overlooked. I'm glad you mentioned that because especially like when you're trying to make 800 horsepower, it's like, well, when, when can you actually get all everything moving together like the a big a big enough turbo that can make that much pressure cylinder heads that can actually facilitate that kind of flow into the cylinder like how how many rpms is the engine going to have to be spinning to get yeah. to the point where that really starts to work together right to make it so that like okay now i'm in my power band Wh where is that yeah yeah, yeah i feel like awesome. head head and flow and cam selection is overlooked by so many people because they get so fixated on a number, you know, right. instead of thinking about their usable power band and stuff. So, you know, when you're getting into like road racing, power band, like where your power is, is so much more important than just the number that you have, you know? And so sure, you can make like 500 wheel horsepower, but if it's at 5,500 RPM and you're revving it out to 7,500, it's really not that helpful, you know? Or, or 6,200 and revving it to seven. <laughs> yeah. Got a lot of power, but for just uh, yeah, yeah. a Yeah, I mean, time. I've seen, see, you see these, I think the stock turbos and the stock engines are so guilty of it. We're like, I'm making 420 wheel horsepower on a blah, blah, blah. And you look at the dyno charts and they're like, they stop at 5,200. Like what happens to the rest of the power? Like, where did it go? It's making less power than like a stock STI. <laughs> I was like, what was the point of that? So, yeah, I mean, and that head package, that valve train and that cam package, I mean, I feel like that's where you build your power band and, you know, having a block that supports it. And then you have the head that actually puts the power where you need it. It's, it's so important. I swear, it's just, just glossed over, you know? Yeah, that, that whole, you really have to have a holistic approach, a holistic mm -hmm. thought process for all of the parts of the engine to get it to work together to get the real best result. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to have a small stock turbo with 272 duration cams and ported heads. I mean, just it doesn't work well together. Mm -hmm. 
at the same yeah. time you put a huge turbo on there and you keep the heads completely stock now you're you're choking the flow that's mm-hmm. working against you so you gotta you gotta you gotta think about you know what is you know where is that turbo making want to make its power and then build the heads and and, and cam package around that yeah yeah i mean turbos are rated in flow and everybody talks so many people talk about like well i'm making this much power 21 psi and blah 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 it's like psi is a, a byproduct of the restriction of flow in your engine so if you got an engine that flows really really well and you're making a power number that's lower than what you would expect it it could be just a byproduct of the fact that your power like your engine's running really efficiently or a turbo that's really restricted like a big turbo is like well i'm making 21 psi i don't know why i'm not making 8,000 horsepower well it's because you're trying to blow through a straw and that's gonna that volume of air is gonna it's a, a, a restriction to flow you know yeah you're making a lot of boost pressure but not mm-hmm. a lot of power and this because the boost pressure is high because yeah. there's a bottleneck of getting all of that air into the cylinder that's that's yeah. where like the, the cams the valves the porting of the cylinder heads that's where it starts to come in is facilitating to get all of that air into the cylinder more yeah yeah well well Dussex, i mean you've you've built a few engines you're you're in the process of of building an engine we we Put have together, somebody yeah. <laughs> here. Yeah, we have somebody here who has built many many engines. What what questions or or anything that you would want to ask Dave? I think uh, one of the biggest fascinations I've personally had with my little engine journey is uh, it's been like cam timing uh, with all the machine surfaces between the block and between the heads, and just even how like the crank gears are made and stuff. Like, how beneficial do you think it is is to index your cam setup? with uh with the new build when you're putting it together uh that's a good question um (laughs) i mean it's it's pretty time consuming so i mean it's rare for us to do it but uh to be honest i i think what your what your benefit is going to be is is shifting a little bit of power here and there you're moving kind of like power under the curve you know, I I wouldn't necessarily say that um, you know you're always going to you know gain something by doing it, <laughs> but you may. You know, you you won't know until you try. <laughs> and and yeah. you might you might find something that was that was just off by right. maybe half degree a degree. I've seen correcting. it as much as like six, <laughs> six that's degrees right. on stock it, it cams. It can be pretty so. significant. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things with the box Yeah. AVCS, you can't really change that per se too much. But when you don't have it, like most of my motors up to this point have been uh, non AVCS motors. And I've gone even so, like you talk about time consuming, I've spent eight, 10 hours on some of these where I'm changing out crank gears to get my TDC as close to zero as possible because that's like the first line of defense. And then you got the machining there and then you have the machining at the heads and now you're playing with each head, trying to get everything, you know, just right. And some of them aren't too bad, but it's crazy to see like that EJ 206. I ran at Coda and stuff. That engine was 100% sealed from the factory. And there was a six degree difference between the intake uh, cams from left to right, from bank to bank just on intake opening and stuff like that. 
So it's just, I don't know. That's why I was just curious. I mean, ABCS, you can't really control that because, you know, it's kind of based on the cam position. So that's kind of good. But on exhaust, I mean, there's, I haven't seen as much of a variation in the exhaust sides, but, um, but well, the exhaust suppose, isn't as detrimental. I suppose with the ABCS, if you know how many degrees off it is, you can mm-hmm. build that into your AV, ABCS, you know, map or whatever uh, mapping basically yeah they make it with the with the the gears that move it makes it a little bit more difficult to figure out where Mm -hmm. where it is or where it isn't because because the gears themselves kind of move a bit i mean when the when the when the gear is not operating it locks in a fixed location Mm -hmm. so i mean you could still figure it out Mm -hmm. based on that location um but yeah it's a lot more difficult to really wrap your head around what you know what the actual difference is sure well and so what i wanted to ask kind of building on what ryan said there is one of the weird things with the boxer engine because you've got two cylinders on this side two cylinders on this side you, you don't have the luxury of like an inline engine where you have one intake cam that is is serving all of the all the pistons and one exhaust cam mm-hmm. you've got pairs have have you seen or or how much how much of a consideration it sounds like maybe not a huge one is there for like one one side of the engine working a little bit better than the other side or or is super done enough with their design that that doesn't come up that often i think it's really hard to quantify <laughs> <You Okay. know? laughs> uh, sure. i mean if you had nothing but time you could maybe sit down and, and analyze all those different things and and try to come up with you know an idea of you know how much one side is off from the other side. But I mean, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really pay the bills to do right, that. Right. Well, and, and the hope is you know, with Subaru's design work, they've, they've tried to make it as straightforward as possible to make everything the same, even though you have two intake cams and two exhaust cams, they're, they're sitting on opposite sides of the engine. Yeah. But you just, you got to wonder like, like what you're saying with the indexing, like, would you run, I mean, run into I, discrepancies? You're bound to have things that are going to be off, you know, yeah. and, they, and they, those discrepancies may, you know, pile up, you know, to a point where it may be really significant. And other times it may, they may counteract each other and, and even out and it may not be a big issue. Um, but I mean, every engine's going to be a little bit different. That's why one engine might make more power than another engine. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we've, we've taken apart engines that, you know, people have decked the heads and one, one head's like five thousands off from the other head. I mean, that's, that's a huge difference in terms of, you know, combustion chamber and stuff. Different yeah. Things. yeah. So like, yeah. yeah, one side versus the other different, different combustion chamber heights and stuff. And, that, and that's, mm-hmm. that's just sloppy work to begin with, but right. You know, I don't, Subaru obviously is not going to, you're not going to see those kind of discrepancies, but maybe smaller variations just you know because they they have a you know they have the economics of building a car to a certain price point and you know you you got to accept a certain variation in the parts from one to another you can't be throwing sure you know half the parts out because they're slightly off right mm-hmm. but it, it goes to show like always always pays it to, to check and measure things before you you start really going down the road of a of a full assembly maybe so long as you know what you're doing you know i mean there's yeah. 
you got an engine coming from you from Rally Tech taking it all apart and checking the clearances probably isn't in your best interest, you know. But if you're some schmuck like me and you're putting like heads together on a short block, double checking and making sure everything is good. I mean, we're even taking it to somebody to verify. That's got to be worth tons and tons of headache, you know. You drop one valve, I mean, it ruins, you know, your entire engine. Like it's really you don't get a lot. You don't get a lot to come away from it when that happens. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of frustration, you know, among this immunity, the Subaru community, you know, people that have had bad luck with building engines, you know, and, and things going wrong. So, yeah. Well, and, and there, there's another thought that I want to run by Dave and just kind of get your take on it, which is service interval. And, and we kind of talked about it with the sleeves, whereas like you, you, you're putting in this, this piece to increase the strength of the engine, but in doing so, you know that, well, this is not going to last 100,000 miles. It might not last 50,000 miles. It might not last 5,000 miles. So you're going you're gonna to run it for a period of time. Then you're going to take it all apart, check everything out, and then maybe put it back together. Or maybe you, you put in a new, new short block or something like that. And I think that looking at things or, or tearing things down before something has failed, being a service interval, is something, for especially for engines, for a lot of people over here, that's that's a concept that is is I'm going to say foreign, if yeah. that's fair. So I mean, how, what do you what do you think of that, and, and how do you guys approach that? Uh, yeah, I mean every every application is is different, uh, but you know for the street performance customer, I mean that concept of having a maintenance schedule or a rebuild schedule is a totally foreign concept. They're only going to come back to you when there's a problem, you know, mm -hmm. once, once the engine has a problem that they, they can identify whether it's a complete failure or whether it's smoking or using oil or whatever it is, that's when they're going to come back to you. But, uh, but yeah, for, uh, a, a race team, you know, it's definitely going to have a, a greater appreciation for, you know, service intervals, you know, or, you know, rebuild intervals. Um, it might be once a season, maybe once every couple seasons, whatever it may be, depending on what they're doing, you know, what their budget is. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're proactive about it, you're, you're likely to spend less money than if you're waiting until it fails. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's and that's the, the rationale behind a service interval is if you like if you have a bearing that's starting to go, like just starting to let go, but you you find it as you've taken the engine apart and you realize, okay, this bearing has now been compromised, probably that the fallout from that damage is less. Like the, the, the catastrophic it's not a catastrophic failure. You can inspect everything, replace the part that has failed. You might just need new bearings. Maybe you need yeah. a new crankshaft, whatever, but that's cheap you know, versus the, you know, that bearing seizing up and the rod snapping and shooting through the side of the block. And now you need a block and you need a crank and you need all the rods and pistons and everything. Over. Maybe yeah, and your car's crank. on fire on television and <laughs> yep, people yeah. are judging you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that hasn't happened to anybody on this, on this podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something that, especially for race teams, like it, it, or if you're competing with your car, that, that that's a concept that, you know, it's maybe worth considering. Yeah. 
And that, and and also from the the race team perspective, I mean, if you're spending ten thousand dollars or whatever it may be to go to an event, you've got sponsors that are you know put it giving you money based on your attendance at that event. If if you have a failure, and it ends up costing you not only you know the cost of rebuilding the engine, but you may have all all those other costs that you've you know that you've spent yeah, an entry fee for nothing yeah. yeah well and the relationships too i mean you could lose relationships will cost you money down the road yeah yeah well and it's it's hard to keep sponsors if you're if you're saying you're going to do a 10 event season or a seven event season and you're only doing three or four of them because the other three or four events or five events you go to you've had an issue and you're not actually able to compete right mm-hmm. so there's there's a lot more riding on it if you're trying to put a season together um, could you, could you shed a little light, Dave? Cause I know that you've, you've had like rally teams, you've run like full seasons. Can I give any idea of what like your service interval looked like? Was it, was it based on engine use? Was it based on time? Was it based on events? Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I'll be honest. Uh, I mean, we, we probably finished you know, half the events that we attended for one reason or another, maybe we rolled or whatever, but. Right. Um, well, this is, this is rallies. So there's, there's a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, rally, than rally is unpredictable. So, I mean, yeah. is, is, but um, I mean, if you, I mean, like if you look at say pro drive, um, you know, their catalogs tell you exactly how often that you should, you know, service your engine. Mm-hmm. And it's not much. It it might be 300, 500 uh, kilometers, stage kilometers, something like that, or a thousand, depending if it's a group N car or something like that. I mean, that's that might a thousand kilometers. You know, that's how many events is that? You know, like Man, maybe yeah. two. Well, on rally, <laughs> yeah, not very many. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, and it's it. But the, but I mean, the, there's that number. That's, the, that's obviously on the extreme end. Obviously, they want to ensure the best results for their teams. They also want to make money off of the rebuild. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I mean, for us, I would say um, once a season, or you know, maybe once every four or five, you know, serious events, you know, where we've run the full event, and you know, we might take the engine apart and just, you know, see what's going on. Sure. Just, just to find something like rise, it's starting to happen versus waiting for a, a window that might let you in to see where something has gone horribly <laughs> wrong. Yes. Well, well, as we're winding down here, Dussex, what other, what other questions might you have for Dave? Um, you guys don't just do just engines, right? You guys do trans rebuilds and things like that too. Yep. Yeah, trans- transmissions was really where we started, you know, and uh, it's still a big part of our business. So we do a lot of that. Nice. Yeah. Dave has, I don't know, what, what do you think? Have you built re- rebuilt more transmissions or built more engines at this point? Or is it is it close? Uh, it's hard to say at this point. I think it's pretty close. Um, you, you've, you've lost track to save your sanity, maybe. I'm, yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and, oh, actually, so one question I would have is, so we've talked about the engine and the thought process for the engine of itself. 
but there's a whole there's there's other systems i'm thinking here specifically of like the oiling and the cooling system which are kind of external mm-hmm. to the engine yeah what's what are some of the other things that people should consider like for the external systems that are supporting the engine because those are those are oftentimes things that also just kind of get left by the wayside as people are planning out a build yeah i mean obviously uh, you want to make sure that you have the necessarily necessary flow of oil to the engine at all times so i mean you have to worry about you know if you're in a race application and you have g-forces that might be moving that oil <laughs> yep. you know away from the pickup so you want to make sure that you you're always going to have oil at the pickup for the oil pump so you're not starving the engine even momentarily you know just a split second might be enough to you know sustain some damage that will just grow over time is it be at that instantaneous pressure drop that or, or even just, you know, like uh, the oil getting frothy, getting air, you know, induced into the oil that can create issues, um, you know, with oil flow to the engine um, through the oil pump. Um, and also, um, I mean, obviously you have a certain oil pressure that, you know, there's a minimum oil pressure that you're going to need. Um and that minimum oil pressure is going to increase as RPMs increase. Um, and that's because you have the, you know, rotational forces acting against the flow of oil going to the connecting rods through the crankshaft. So, I mean, if, if you don't have enough oil pressure to overcome that, then you're starving the, the rod bearings of oil. Um, and that can be a problem at, you know, like really high RPMs because really high RPMs, stock pump, the flow's dropping off. You know, it's not able to maintain the pressure and flow that it needs. Sure. Um, and just as you need more oil pressure at the rods to, to keep, the, you know, that oil flow going. Um, because it's, so. it's something worth mentioning, just, just to clarify why it's so important is that that oil pressure that pressurized liquid is what is actually creating mm-hmm. the bearing. That is that is what is creating the boundary between the crank and the rod. Well, or the crank yes and, the, and no. It's yeah. it's getting the oil there, but it's not actually. If you relied strictly on the oil pressure, you know, sixty psi of oil pressure, but you have like a <clears> thousand psi pressing down on that piston, it's not enough to keep that that bearing um, separated from the journal. Uh, you're relying on the rotational movement to basically create a wedge of oil. Uh, and, you know, as, you know, as that journal spins, you know, it builds and builds pressure, you know, ahead of it, you know, and it, it, it keeps, uh, you know, that, that journal off the bearing, you know, keeps a layer of oil underneath, even under really extreme, um, you know, forces. Uh, but you need that oil pressure to get the oil there. You need that oil pressure for startup, you know, you know, before you can really build that wedge of oil. Um, so, I mean. Uh, A lot of pieces to the puzzle. But, but, but the main thing is you need that oil pressure to overcome 
the rotational forces that are acting against the oil flow because basically you have a connection between the main bearing journal on the crankshaft and the rod bearing journals. So that's where your oil to the rods comes from. It comes from the mains right? and it has to go through the center of the crank and then out to the rods for it to get to the center of the crank and then out to the rods. It has to overcome that, you know, rotational force. And as the RPMs are increasing, that rotational force is increasing. And so you need higher pressure to get that oil to the rods. You know, well, some, some of the aftermarket yeah. crankshafts yeah. help by basically direct drilling between the, you know, the rod journal and the main journal. So it doesn't have to go to the center of the crankshaft and then out, you know. But, or, or the cross drilling of the cranks you've got more than one main journal that's feeding one Roger. Yeah, the cross, cross, you know, like double cross drilled or whatever you want to call it, um, yeah. you know, where you have two sets of, you know, um, holes basically in the yeah. crankshaft for the mains, you know, that, that helps where the primary set of, you know, oiling holes, you know, kind of get to the center line, you know, or the parting line, you know, and the oil flow kind of drops off. Now yeah. you have another set of, you know. Mm -hmm. You got something like a fallback, a, a redundancy, a little bit more of a redundancy. Yeah, or not requiring it to have to last the amount of the volume of oil to last a whole duration. It only has to go half the, the duration. Whole rotation. Before yeah. it gets refreshed, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and what this all brings to my mind is is monitoring so like like with gauges or or possibly with the, with an ecu but like it seems like you you if you're if you're trying to make more power and you've got an engine built engine in the car like oil pressure and oil temperature are probably two really key pieces of information that you'd want to have an eye on yeah are there, well, are there oil any pressure and oil temperature are going to be somewhat related <laughs> so sure as your oil temperature goes up your pressure is probably going to drop off because the mm -hmm. oil is thinning out are there any other gauges that you like to see or that you like to put on higher higher power engines just to try and give you a little bit of a window to what's going on in there? Uh, well, coolant temperature, um, you know, an accurate coolant temperature gauge other than just a, you know, red line. <laughs> right. <laughs> on, you know, from the factory. But um, especially if you're racing, you may see, you know, higher coolant temperatures. You need to know where that, you know, danger point really is. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of other gauges, I would say EGT or, you know, air fuel ratio, those type of things are critical, you know, cause if you're, <clears throat> if your exhaust temperatures or your air fuel ratios, you know, are outside the range that you want them to be, um, you know, they can have a pretty quick effect on, on quick, engine reliability. Quick, quick engine failure, you know, is what mm -hmm. it comes from. Yeah. Do you guys ever, have you guys ever monitored like uh, internal block coolant pressure, you know, where you're kind of monitoring to see if there's a combustion um, escaping into the coolant side of the block ever? Uh, we haven't, but I mean, I know it's, it's done on some of like the WRC cars and things like that. You know, they, um, uh, they have systems in place to, uh, I mean, for one, they do things 
to do some crazy things with those cars. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, no head gaskets. They just use gas rings and, and, yeah. and O-rings to seal, seal the head. Yep. And then they have ports. If the pressure gets past that, that gas ring that's containing the cylinder pressure, they, they port that pressure outside the block. You know, so they so can measure it. It's not pressurizing the uh, the cooling system, um, but uh, but yeah, we we've not really gone to that extent to you know. But it would be a good, you know, if you had a if you had a <clears throat> whole data log system and a lot of you know sensors and stuff, then I would definitely consider that as you know an important factor. We've actually. Thought it started by pressure think, also would be a good thing to model. Oh, sure. Or, or, oh, or yeah. crankcase pressure. Yeah. Crankcase yeah. pressure. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've started thinking about putting a coolant pressure sensor or trying to incorporate that because we, we've now had two engines, uh, Scotty and the Pikes Peak car, that lost coolant. But it turns out if you have no coolant to measure, you don't really see the coolant temperature go up because nothing's <laughs> hitting the sensor, at least not, not <laughs> right you, away. But you would it's see a good. coolant pressure drop. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like at least if, on the crossover. It, to, to get some kind of an indication that something has gone horribly wrong before something really goes horribly wrong would be nice. So that's that's one of those gauges that we, we've kind of become uh, aware of the significant, possible significance of it. I've got a couple um, JDM crossovers from some of these engines I bought that have two ports in them, one for the engine coolant temperature, and the other one that's just drilled, tapped, and, and uh, um, just has a plug in it. I was like, why in the world? I was like, I bet that'd be a good place to measure your coolant pressure, your like water pump pressure or whatever, because yeah. it's obviously not in the radiator, because I think that's a big misconception. People will watch radiator pressure and like, that's not telling you what you need. I mean, how efficient is your water pump? If you're getting compression pressure by and your cooling system, you want to measure that somewhere in the block side of the cooling system, you know? Yeah. And, and I was like, that's got to be the spot right there. <laughs> Probably not a bad one. The cool cross over there. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Dave, as we're as we're winding down, and, and again, you know, thank you for for taking the time out of your day to sit down and chat with us. Um, what are what are is maybe one or two factors that that people just just overlook when they're thinking of the engine builders? Is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet? That's like that's that's very commonly that you kind of have to kind of bring people's focus back to as you're as you're working through one of these builds. Uh, hmm, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I would say like uh, aero separators, although that's really become, you know, people really are starting to understand the importance of keeping the oil out of the intake system. Um, but yeah, I mean, aside from that. That, um, that is a deep topic for sure. Yeah. But aside from that, I would say uh, things related to you know, the cooling system, you know, how, you know, obviously when you make more power, you're making more heat, you need to, you know, dissipate that heat. You need to do things in that regard, you know, bigger radiators or different, you know, thermostat or whatever it may be, you know. Dussex kind of touched on transmissions as well. How often do you run into like this, this very high power engine build that is being bolted to a drivetrain that does isn't really suited to, to handle the power? Uh, I mean, the good thing about the Subarus is they have a pretty broad torque range. So, I mean, 
it's rare to have one that's like undrivable because it's geared wrong, you know, yeah. like it'll still, I mean, still be okay. But yeah, on the track, definitely gear ratios and power band need to go somewhat hand in hand, you know, and you need to really think about those things. Um, yeah. And, uh, and some people overlook that. Yeah. Well, and transmissions, and I'm kind of thinking here of differentials as well. Like if you have like an, an open differential up, up front and maybe just a, a torque biasing differential in the rear, but you're making 700 wheel horsepower, those, that differential setup is probably not going to be ideal to actually let you make use of. All I, that I think I think the biggest the biggest thing that people overlook is is the fact that they need to put money into their drivetrain to support the power level that they're they're building mm -hmm. the engine for. I mean that they're spending all their money on the engine, but then they forget. They need a clutch that's going to handle that. Yeah, they need axles that are going to handle that. They need to, they may need to do some things to the transmission and rear diff that need you know to support that kind of power level, and it's it's very often overlooked. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where it just we, I think we as enthusiasts we are we are prone to tunnel vision. We 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 focus on one aspect and and. and have a tendency to kind of miss some of the bigger picture sometimes it's it's a power number mentality you know? right like, mm -hmm. right i i want an engine that makes this much power and like you're talking about earlier dussex it's it, it makes it like right here for mm -hmm. this for for yeah for 60 <laughs> rpms you're making 600 yeah. horsepower now 500 rpms to the left of that you're making 100 horsepower and, yeah and then after that you have to shift but like for that yeah for that one for those 60 rpms is pretty awesome for those yeah. 60 rpms i'm free that's right that's right oh man perfect well well dave uh i guess as, as we're winding it down here too is there is there anything else that you wanted to mention just as far as like uh your engine packages or or any any of those other details that we didn't touch on uh, i would just say that i mean if anyone's interested in 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 having us do something you know for them you know they don't necessarily need to be locked into what we offer off the shelf. I mean, we can always custom build something, you know, so just encourage people a, to reach out and contact us. Got a list of starting points and then that's where the conversation comes in. And, yeah. and, and, and really, I mean, maybe that's the best point to make is that at that point, like if it's not just simply putting in a set of pistons, a conversation or a consultation is, is really time well spent yeah. really on, on both ends of it on, 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 on your end and on the shop's end and on the customer's end, because that's how you can like so much of what we do. I'm sure Dave, you'd probably agree is, is trying to fill in those little oversights or those little details that are, that are not considered. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the main goal is to make sure that people are happy with the results, you know, if they understand the, you know, the drawbacks or the, you know, positives and negatives of, of a certain approach versus a different approach. You know, the, the, you know, the more educated they are, the more happy they're going to be with the end results, I think. So, I mean, obviously sure. we want to, we want to communicate uh, as, as well as possible with the customer to, to get to the point where they're happy. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dave, I, I will say thank you again for, for all of your time. Dussex, do you have any last questions that have come to mind? No, sir. All right. Well, then we will we will wrap it up there. And, and thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, until next time, as always, stay tuned with Flatirons Tuning. 
Thanks everyone for tuning in to the Flatiron Syndicate Motorsports Podcast. Once again, we'd like to let you know that your support is what makes this show possible. Be sure to check out our online store at flatironstuning.com for any of your aftermarket or OEM Subaru parts needs. And as always, stay tuned with Flatiron's Tuning.